Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. an interesting one today. This has come in two or three times via email asking if I would talk about this um, this little book called the Didache. Didache. Now if you look in the title of this it looks like Didache or Didache but it's Didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E-E. And my fear is that some people are going to see the title here and think don't know what it is, don't need it but it actually is a really fascinating little book, about 2,300 words. It's anonymous, it's composite. That means not one author wrote it at one time. We can see uh, bits of other books like from the Dead Sea Scrolls show up here. Some uh, of the writings of the early church fathers wrote about this book and it was very much loved by many of them It comes from the end of the first century, so this is a really early little book. It wasn't found, by the way, until 1873, but we knew it existed because early church fathers wrote about it. And then later in the 300s, around 360 there, we find people like Athanasius writing saying, we don't think it should be in the Bible. And it never did make it into anybody's list that I know of, any widely accepted list of what books should belong in the Bible, although it was written awfully close to the time where other books in the New Testament were written. So what is it? It is a church manual and it is fascinating for all of that. It starts off, this is the teaching of the Lord's church uh, to the Gentiles. And it really is a, a manual showing how to move from the Jewish Christian community, how, how they can move into the Gentile community, not by becoming more Gentile, but by the Gentiles becoming a bit more Jewish in their order, church order and such. And even that's way simplified. By the way, this is not a hidden book. It's not a lost book. It has been found now in, I think, three different forms that are almost entirely complete. And you can read it for free anywhere online. Just type it in and uh, you'll find free copies that you can even print out if you want. And, and why wouldn't you? It's only 2,300 words. It doesn't take that much. And there are some fascinating things in it. First of all, it shows us that the early Christians felt the need to organize, that they felt the need for some sort of standardization among the churches. Now, Jesus never indicated that that's what he was looking for. If you read the Gospels again and again, you will not find him trying to standardize ways of belief and activity, except that our activities should always be driven by love, by uh, benevolence, by giving, sharing, and living within those type of communities. Um, That he was very consistent about. But as how do you observe communion? Jesus made it a part of a meal. And then we find early Christians also using it as part of a meal. By the 300s, it had gone from a meal to an altar. It had become so standardized 
that it, it's, its meaning changed from a celebration of the memory of Christ and the living Christ within us to a really laser focus on crucifixion to the point where in the Roman Catholic Church uh, crosses have Jesus on them and that makes them a crucifix. It is uh, that focus on that, the pain of Christ, the crucifixion. Um, that all happened, it, it didn't happen overnight, it took a couple hundred years. But Jesus gave a few, just basically, just remember this as you eat at your tables with me. Paul put it a little bit more formally, uh, but not nearly as formal and as reductionistic as we do, turning it from a meal to this little, especially during COVID, this little one-shot packs that is a, a melted Jolly Rancher and a piece of styrofoam is what it tastes like. The, the Didache laid out rules and it's divided into three sections. One is Christian ethics, which is a really interesting section. I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, the second one are on rules about what would later be called sacraments or the way that we access grace. In particular, baptism and communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper as it's known in various tribes. The baptism one I found fascinating because um, baptism was to be performed in living water, so running water. Now, why? I think because of the way the Greeks did things, and this is written in Koine Greek, the, the same language as the rest of the New Testament, therefore probably influenced by Greek thought, why, not, why wouldn't it be? Uh, that they were using this, Jesus is the living water, therefore we must be baptized in living water. That is water that is flowing, a river, an ocean, a stream, you get the idea. Now, that was never brought up in the other books in scripture, ever. And in fact, on Acts chapter two, in, in Acts chapter two, on Pentecost, when Peter preached, and it says about 3,000 were, were baptized, there is not a living water around Jerusalem that you could have done 3,000 that day. So if we're taking the numbers as given, they're undoubtedly baptizing in the mikvot, the already carved out baptistries that Jews had around the temple or in other public pools, such as the one that the um, disabled man was lying near when waiting for an angel to trouble the water. Do you remember that story? There were a lot of those pools about. And so you could do 3,000 in a day if you use that. So do I believe that because the DDK is so old, and it is impressively old, that uh, it might have a point with the living water? No, no. Be aware that people wrote things and sometimes they got it wrong. Okay, that's, I don't think we should be ringing sirens and alarm bells. It did also go on to say, that if it is too cold or the person is too sick, you could baptize by effusion. And effusion, defined by the DDK, is to pour like a bucket of water. It's a sizable amount of water on somebody's head three times in a row. And the three times undoubtedly uh, did two things. One, it did cover you with water, therefore you were buried in water. But the main reason was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now there are some early Christian groups then that started actually immersing you three times um, for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are a couple of very small Protestant groups that do that to this very day. 
Um, and by the way, we also have a Protestant group or two that say I'm baptizing you in, in the name of Jesus only. And I always thought, well, that was just unnecessary. You know, even if you just want to baptize them in the name of Jesus, just say that. You don't need to say, and you other guys stay out of the water. I don't really get it. Anyway, and then the third part of the DDK was on church organization. And that, um, that's an interesting transition in history that, well, we'll get to that. First of all, there are some other strange things in here to us. Fasting was commanded for Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, two weeks ago on a Monday, we covered the subject of fasting. We did it fast, but I think, did it fast, but I think you'll enjoy it anyway. All right, so have a listen to that. Then you can come back here and finish this. Um, fasting was now required. Well, Jesus didn't require it, although it does seem like he expected his followers to continue to fast. Fasting and special vows were a part of early Christian life because they were part of Jewish life. And so we see Paul making a Nazarite vow, for example. And these were time-limited vows. Well, others were for lifetime, like John the Baptist's Nazarene vow. So again, uh, fasting requiring is not what I think we should be doing, but encouraging, finding ways to fast that match with Isaiah 58, go back two weeks ago, uh, and I, I think that would be fine. And you put those boundaries on yourself. You don't put those boundaries on anybody else. And again, baptism was by immersion in living water, unless that was unavailable uh, due to, they, and it brings up cold, being too cold, somebody's too old or sick, then the effusion was done. And that may surprise many of you out there that um, many of you think, might think that the, any substitute for immersion, uh, immersion rather, did not happen for hundreds of years. No, it was already there within a lifetime of the apostles, probably. John lived somewhere into the 90s AD, and this book did come from the end of that century sometime. There may have been some overlap, certainly overlap uh, with those people who were taught personally by the apostle John and by the apostle Paul. So it's amazing. Uh, would I consider that a substitute today? You know, no, but I still have the answer that God, you know, ask Moses, what do you have in your hand? What can you do? Let's do what you can do and trust God. And so he sends an 80-year-old shepherd with a stick against Egypt and he wins because Moses says, I got a stick. Just have what you've got uh, and trust God. I know that freaks some people out, but there it is. Also, uh, the DDK has the Lord's Prayer in full which I find very cool, that they were already repeating this and using this in worship. The organization thing, and I'll do this really quick because I know we're over 10 minutes and I try to always keep these under 15, sometimes not successful. Um, this reveals, this book reveals that itinerant or roaming ministers, evangelists, even roaming pastors were teaching these congregations. There did not seem to be any evidence actually of a local preacher that serves one congregation. Although this book is showing us that already that was undergoing change. It was going from the itinerant or the roaming evangelist, this horseback riding preachers, I guess, to local bishops. And, and that word gives us a problem. Local bishops and deacons running the affairs of their own congregation, their own synagogue. The names mean the same thing. 
Why does it give us a problem? Well, because when we think of bishop, we think of one person who is over a vast territory, uh, like the bishop over the United States, you see. Back then, the word bishop is the same as elder, which is the same as presbyter, which is the same as shepherd. So it does seem that congregations tended to have a plurality or more than one of these bishops, and deacons were active servants of the church who did roles that uh, the bishops or the, the spiritual leaders didn't need to do. And so they would make sure, especially in caring for the poor, the widows, the orphans, making sure people were housed, that type of work. Slowly, sometime uh, by the end of the first century into the middle of the 300s, the fourth century, we find that bishops then do become one person over many churches. They begin to wear special clothes and they take upon themselves special responsibilities and special powers. That is not anywhere in the DDK. Uh, that, that comes later. Uh, again, this was um, a book that was targeted. It was targeted for the believers in Syria to organize. So it seems to have been a way for evangelists to go out and say, here's how you build your community. Here's how you build your worship. We get that kind of question a lot. They say, we've been watching. Now we've got a neighbor or two that are watching with us. What do we do next? Well, it'd be easy for me to write a DDK saying, all right, you do these forms and you do it this way. Might not be the best thing for you though. And so if you have questions like that, write me, patrick at rsafeharbor.com, and you and I can work it out together, what we can do in your area next. And whatever that will look like, whether that means that you huddle close to us or you branch out on your own, we're fine. As long as Jesus is on the way out there, we're good, right? Um, two real quick thing. well, one real quick thing, only have time. There, one of the arguments, uh, really hot arguments in the church right now is what does God think about same-sex attraction? And people run to um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they also run to Paul. But Paul, when he refers to some activity, is actually putting together words that don't go together. He's creating a new word, which he did and people did back then. Um, and it's hard to really determine exactly what he was talking about. And those people that tell you it's easy, don't know Greek, don't know history, they're not classicist, so ignore that. The Didache already, in words almost exactly like Paul, condemns certain behavior. But when it comes upon that word that Paul used, as uh, I think some people translate it as men lying with men, the phrase is those who corrupt young boys. And that makes a lot more sense in the first century for what Paul was talking about, because there were predators who uh, young boys going to school actually used to have to have bodyguards because these predators would go after the young boys. Therefore, it's not same sex attraction. It is the uh, um, misuse, sexual misuse and abuse of children that was being talked about and perhaps talked about by Paul. That argument's going to continue but I do find it very, very fascinating that as early as a couple of decades after the death of Paul, we're already seeing that phrase defined by people that speak that language in that culture as sexual predation, not as love between two people. And again, I'm not trying to settle the argument, but I want you to know that the DDK is out there and that might have some significance.
Hmm. Oh, well, now that I've rattled the cage and managed to make it beyond 15 minutes, <laughs> have a wonderful week. I'm, I'm going to because I don't have to talk about the DDK for a while, but read it. It's actually a lot of fun. Cheers.